Turn to Daniel chapter 6. We're going to look at a lot of different things today, but uh, part of the early part of this is going to be here in Daniel 6. So follow with me, please, in verse 1. So it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. And then the high officials and satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects, And the satraps, the counselors, and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes a petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. So now, O king, establish the injunction, sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. And then King Darius signed the document and injunction. This is really key, verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, his death sentence, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. And he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God. Now note these words. As he had done previously, this was his pattern to continue to do this. And though a law had been made, he was going to continue to do it. So then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. So I had something strange happen to me on Tuesday afternoon from about noon to three as I was working on my laptop. I do all of my, I don't write anymore hardly, I do mainly typing, Um, but I couldn't get something straightened out from about noon to three as much as I was trying. So as I was typing, my left thumb wanted to participate in the typing. When I learned to type back in the day, I'm not like some of y'all, some of y'all need to learn how to type. This is not typing, okay? This is typing, knowing what you do with this, but anyway... But my left thumb, when I learned to type, I, I used my right thumb for spacebar, keypad with the laptop. But for some reason, my left thumb wanted to participate and do things. Now, I know why that was when I stopped for a minute and tried to figure out, what do I do with my phone? I just used my thumbs. And so my left thumb thought, okay, this is phone time, and kept wanting to participate in it. And for about three hours, I couldn't get it straightened out. My left thumb wanted to participate in the typing, though I never use my left thumb when I type on my laptop. And so it was off. And so what I had to do was 
I had to open up a whole other Word document, and I just had to start thinking of words that had the letter B in it because my thumb wanted to do the B instead of my right thumb always does the B. And, and, and so, <clears throat> so anyway, so I had to open up another Word document, and I had to try and figure out what to do with that, and, and you'll be happy to know that I got it figured out. It took about three hours to figure it out, but things are back in order now. One of the interesting things that happens in our life is that sometimes we are going about life and something new happens. And for a little bit, we're trying to figure out what has changed. What is now off in regard to what is, is, is taking place in our lives. And today, on a much grander scale, I want to talk from my heart to us as a church about what has become off in our culture. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about the all things. I'm going to talk about the things that are behind that because that's what's important. We need to frame our understanding of why things are happening and taking place today. And we need to have a biblical understanding of that. Not just talk about the issues. We know what the issues are. If you're a Christ follower and the Word of God means something to you, you, we see, we hear the untruths, we know the lies that are there. So what we need to do is to know what's kind of behind all that so that we can experience and know how to navigate the reality of all of this and so that we can frame things properly. So I'm going to finish with our time. I'm going to talk about that. I'll finish our time today talking about some biblical practices that will equip us and help us um, gain a biblical worldview that will help us to navigate all of this. So back in 2008 in June, we moved back from being church planters in Germany And we had spent time there for four years uh, walking alongside Germans to start churches and to pour our life into the German people with the gospel. When I got back, one of the first books that I bought was a book called Who Gets to Narrate the World by a man named Robert Weber. He was a professor at the time at Wheaton College. And uh, this book had a profound impact upon me when I got back. The subtitle of the book is this, Contending for the Christian Story in an age of rivals. And so as I got back and I began to read this, I began to say, yes, this is what I saw in Germany. And now that I was back in the States, this is what I was hearing and what I was seeing here. In the introduction, this is the premise of the book. At one time, the Western world, talking about Europe and America, was narrated by the Christian God in the biblical story of His work in Israel and through Jesus to redeem and restore the whole creation. Today... This story of God's cosmic salvation has been lost in the West. In Europe, the light has nearly flickered out. And in North America, the light is growing dim. New challenges appear on the horizon. The reality of all of this is this truth. Somebody is always giving a message to a culture. There are dominant voices that are calling us, particularly to believers, to shift our focus from the scripture and who Christ is, and to listen to what the world has to say. And we know this to be the case. Somebody is narrating a truth. But there is ultimately one truth, and that truth is a person, and that truth is revealed in the scripture. And so we, therefore, must know the one who is the fulfillment of the scripture and to know what he has for us to walk in. And so... We had in four years in Germany saw firsthand the weakness of the church and the liberalism that crept into the churches and the impact that comes when a culture embraces 
with the government a secular humanistic ethic and worldview. As a continent, Europe has such a rich history of Christianity. And what you do now is to, not to go to those places to worship where God did significant things in Europe. You go there and you pay a fee as a tourist to kind of see what happened and took place there. Now here in America, we are seeing a very big drift that is coming away from the gospel as well. And so we, therefore, also must be concerned. So when we arrived back from Germany, we had gained a new perspective and saw the reality of what was happening with the church and what was happening overall in the American culture and the shift that had taken place in just four years. And we had gained, as I said, just an invaluable perspective living in Western Europe that had lost its Christian history. And so for us, the Western world has become not Christ-centered. It's walked away from that. It has become man-centered. It has moved on from God and the importance of Scripture being a part of our lives. I often caution Western Christians to be careful about reading the end times, our eschatology, strictly through an American lens about things, that America is the only way that we see this. You may not realize this or not, but America is only 4.23% of the entire world's population. So we are just a small part of this global reality, but because we're Americans, we're better than everybody. And we kind of think that, oh, everything runs through here, And we've got to be careful about all of that because if you haven't noticed, the gospel has left the West and it's gone to the East. The church is exploding in places like China, Iran, Muslim countries. And so we need to take note. And for us, things have deeply changed in America. But the hope is that America has this reality. People like you and I who are concerned about the gospel and desire to live for the glory of God. And I think whether America awakens again and our, if our prominence continues to wane, what I'm praying, if that's the case, is that God would awaken the church. Amen? Because that could happen. And what kind of influence we would have if we, as God's people, were awakened again by the power of the cross, the wonder of the resurrection, and the reality that Christ is interceding on His throne right now for His people. So for us, it's important to know what's happening and taking place. So as faithful, biblical Christ followers, our hearts are broken over the reality of what we see in our country. We have had two great awakenings in the history of our country. And I don't know if you've ever read about them, but it's amazing what God did in this country twice. I have often prayed, God, would you do this again and awaken your people and, and, and so that we would see repentance, we would see salvation, we would see the church thriving again. Now, all of us know this, and so sorry, I'm going to take us back to 2020 for a second, and this word called COVID. And I want to frame COVID for us, hopefully in the right way, that moving forward, that we would look at 2020 and 2021 through the eyes of God's sovereignty. There was not a moment in the history of the world where God stepped off of His throne and He was not still in charge of things, including 2020. 
And we need to look at 2020 as a sovereign work of God where there was a great purging that took place in a lot of things. All the studies now, because it's a few years later, show this, that a third of the people that were faithfully attending church in 2020 are no longer darkening the doors, not even one time a month. They just absolutely quit going, a third. And when you multiply that out, a third of people in every kind of denomination just quit going, you were talking about millions of people that just checked out of church and are doing whatever that they're doing today, but it doesn't have anything to do with Christ. And so I want to remind you and I this morning that when we talk about these things that God does and that God allows, we need to see them with a biblical perspective, not from a human perspective, but to understand that God is working in mighty ways in spite of what may be happening and taking place in a culture. Do you agree with me that God is always at work? He is always at work. He is always doing something. He is always calling people to Himself, and this is the case here. So our time today is not about 2020. It's not about COVID. But it's, it, but it's about this, that when these moments come, that every generation of Christ followers, they have choices to make when these things happen and come. Babylon is representative of the church culture, or the, the world's culture, and what it's trying to do to the church culture. And so it's representative of this world system. And we'll read about that here in just a moment. But as we finished in reading Daniel 6 a few weeks ago in the W4, and as I just read it a while ago, Daniel's fellow workers plotted to ruin him by trying to get him to break a law that they had with lies. By the, did you notice a while ago they said, hey, King Darius... All of your officials have come together and we've made this decision. Everybody needs to pray to you for 30 years. Who was not a part of that decision and included in that meeting? Daniel wasn't. And so they've lied and they've done all of this. And they've got Darius to sign the document to pass this. This designed to persecute, but it's really designed out of jealousy to get rid of one person in the kingdom. And that was Daniel. So Daniel had a choice to make. Should Daniel submit to the signed government document? He's, a, he's working for King Darius. Darius is about to make him in charge of the whole Mede-Persian kingdom. Or should Daniel decide this? No, I'm going to adhere to a higher calling in my life. And so the text that we read a while ago says, When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in the upper chamber open to Jerusalem, and he got down on his knees three times a day, and he prayed and he gave thanks before his God. And I've been thinking about these words often lately, as he had done previously. Daniel in that moment didn't decide, oh, what am I going to do? Daniel, when you go back to Daniel 1 when he was taken from Judah by Nebuchadnezzar, they're in Babylon, and they're going to be educated, trained, they're going to eat the food, the food of the king, they're going to drink the king's wine. Daniel and his three friends said, no, we're not going to do this. We're going to live for God, and we're not going to participate in this. This is what the Bible calls resolve. 
And they did it in Daniel 1, and they're doing in Daniel 6, it is happening again, where they have already decided ahead of time, so that you're not trying to figure out something in the moment, but it's already established, this is how I'm going to live. And so Daniel had already established a disciplined pattern of faith practice. He was going to live to please God, not man. He was going to set his face toward Jerusalem, which is a picture of setting his face toward God. He took a submissive posture before God. He bowed on his knees three times a day. Prayer kept his faith alive in Babylon. He prays to God. And did you notice what he did there? Uh, An edict, a law that cannot be undone, that was certain going to bring about his demise and his death, when he bows before the Lord, listen to what it says, he gave thanks to his God as he had done previously. His new circumstance meant death, and yet he gave thanks for the new circumstance. Daniel didn't pray for an out. He didn't go get some friends and try to figure out what to do. He didn't try to get on a chariot or horse and run away from the kingdom. He just said, God, I'm going to be the way that I've always been, and that is somebody who trusts you. So an unchanging government law established through lies and deceit would not move him from what he had always done and how he had always lived. And I tell you, folks, listen, we can decry all of the secular institutions and the increase of what they are aiming to do to hush up Christian voices and voices of truth and the influence in our nation, or we decry that and just complain about it, or we can teach ourselves and our children to keep on living as we have previously lived, faithfulness to God, regardless of what the government and regardless of what anybody else has to say. Daniel was resolved to live as he had always lived, bowing his heart before God. And letting the greater posture of his life remain faithful to the Lord. So I've entitled our time today, Living Righteously in Babylon. Babylon, as I said a while ago, is representative. We're not going to do the video, just to kind of let you know about that. Um, uh, and you're wondering about the video, and it's just going to be my secret. So I'm not going to tell you. We'll, I will show it to you uh, maybe another time. Listen to what the Bible says, particularly in Revelation, about Babylon. Another angel, a second followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Revelation 17, 5. And on her forehead was written a name, uh, it was, was, a, was written a name of mystery. Babylon the great, mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. Revelation 18, 21. Then a mighty angel took a stone. And like a great millstone threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be no more. So I want to remind you and I this morning that though the world is going to continue to put pressure upon God's people, I have some great news in the room this morning. Jesus said, I will build my church in the gates of hell the city of Babylon, the philosophy of the world will not prevail against the church. Amen? That's our hope today. 
So the culture, it's going to continue to be the culture. That's what the culture does. But God's people are called to live righteously in the midst of that. And God's people are to be aware of the things that are present. So if you would, go back now to Genesis chapter 3. And I want us to look at our, I'm going to share four things that are behind kind of what's happening and taking place today so that you and I can understand these things. And so get your Bible ready. We're going to look at multiple texts today. Genesis chapter 3. Everything is good before we get to verse 1 of chapter 3 and then things change. Let's read the first five verses, please. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then sadly, the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. So they first works of righteousness here. So they sewed figs leaves together and made for themselves loin cloths. So let me take a moment to just deal with this. You're, I know that you're like me. You see the news, you read stuff on the internet and you're like what has happened to this country who thinks like this why do people think that this is now normal kind of action in the in the way that people ought to live their life or the way they ought to govern or the way we ought to do family or to do the church and and we just kind of wonder what in the world has happened and what has happened ultimately is this is that satan has no new strategy What he has done from the very beginning, he is continuing to do today. And this is why we need to be wise about the culture. Because the one who is behind the Babylonian world culture is Satan himself. And he is continuing to do what he did in the beginning in the garden, is to continue to challenge the Word of God connected to the nature of God. He is still saying today, did God really say this? trying to get us to doubt what the Scripture says. And so Satan is behind all of this. He is continuing the same thing. So as Eve existed in the garden before the fall, her whole worldview was centered on the glory of God. God, how incredible it must have been to be in the garden, to know that God would come during the day and you could run to the garden and you could spend time with God and God would come and and fellowship with them. And so everything in Eve's life is secure. It is satisfied. There's no reason to doubt God's goodness. All that she knew was that God was good. 
Adam and Eve lived in a place where the life principle dominated the death principle. And God's words brought them life. But in heaven, a rebellion of words and wills had happened from Satan. And God said, Satan said, I'm going to put my throne above God's. And God's like, no, you're not. Satan loses that battle. He will always lose that battle. Satan has lost the battle, by the way. Amen. Jesus has won the victory. And so he's trying to do all that he can. And so he leaves there. He comes into the garden. And with his words now that bring chaos and confusion, he begins to have a conversation to attack the accuracy of the word of God. Let me give you a clear principle here today. Don't ever talk to Satan. Don't talk to him. You and I need need no conversations with him. He is the greatest deceiver. Talk to God. So Eve, having this conversation, three things he does, and this will be on the screen. He will attack the accuracy of God's word. It will always be questioned, softly or loudly. Did God actually say this? This is the fundamental issue since the beginning of time. And do not think for a moment that the challenge of God's authority from the enemy is going to continue. He's going to use cultures and governments and and, and all kinds of things to bring about this doubting of God. And so this questioning of the goodness of God in His nature and the truth of His Word is the great crime of the universe. Continuing to challenge. It's already had an effect on Eve. God said, don't eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden. That's all that he said. Did you notice what she did? She added to it. God says, we can't eat of that tree and we also can't touch it. And so for the first time ever, someone has added to the words of God and Eve does it. And Satan, you can see, is already having an effect on her view of who God is. Secondly, the acceptability of his word. So he attacks the accuracy, and then he attacks the acceptability of his word. He says, how can you accept what God said? Can't you see that God is holding out on you by not giving you complete freedom and autonomy? Why, why would he not let you eat of the fruit of the, of, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Why, why, is he, why has he got this prohibition for you, Eve? Don't you see, Eve, he's holding out on you. If he loved you, he would give you, listen to this lie, it permeates our culture today. Again, nothing new. If God loved you, he would just let you have complete autonomy to do whatever you want to do. Well, how well is that working for our country today? How's that well working for your life if you're worshiping self at the altar of self? How's that working? It doesn't work. Don't you see he's holding out on you? If he loved you, he would let you have the knowledge that he has. And one of the things that that has been lost in the garden, it's really lost today in our American culture, is innocence. Eve loses her innocence in a moment. Adam will lose his innocence in a moment. We are to try and maintain our innocence and, and as, particularly as parents pouring into our kids, as long as we can, we want to keep their innocence. We don't need to know every aspect of what is evil. We need to know what is good and right and holy. And so, first statement on earth, Satan says, no, Eve, it's better for you to have independence from God 
and then you'll have more life. And then he just flat out denies the word's authority. Satan states that he knows more about God than Eve does. So let me let you in on a little insight, Eve. God wants to be God. He doesn't want you to be like him, which was a lie. She had been made in whose image? God's. She was like God. And yet he's twisting something that's true, putting another angle on it, which he is really good at. So he tells her, God has designed things to make sure that you don't become like him, knowing the truth of good and evil. Eve, you could get more out of life if you knew evil and good. You just know good and you know God. But boy, you could really live it up and you could really have a great life, a fulfilling life, if you knew what evil was. So he's like, why would God withhold that from you, Eve? It's a key piece of information that he's just kind of not told you. Which was a lie. God was actually loving them by giving them the command. His commands are loving, by the way. They're always loving. But God wants to be God. He doesn't want you to be like him in any kind of way. Again, another lie. And I tell you, the strategy of our enemy, hear this, the strategy of our enemy is still to make sin seem normal and to make godliness connected to biblical truth seem bizarre and completely odd. God's strategy for us is that we would not be conformed to the world, but would be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And we are always to be ready and on guard for the lies that even creep up in the church and particularly the ones in the culture in regard to the things that we watch, that we listen to, the people that we are around. We are constantly being molded by someone if we're not submitting our lives to Christ. So I want you to hear this. What is behind all of the craziness in our world is still the lie from the Garden of Eden to attack God's Word. Did God really, really say that there's just two genders. Yes, God said that. Did God say this is what a marriage is? Yes, God said this is what a marriage is. Did God say this is what integrity looks like? Yes, God did. But the challenge from the enemy is always going to be, well, did God really actually say that? Can you really trust that? You know, a lot of, a lot of humans have touched all the biblical texts. How can you really trust the text that's come to us is one that you can believe in and you can trust in. And so we will continue to live in a culture the Babylonian world system culture that will continue to say even to Christians, did God really say that? And that will be the challenge. Secondly, one of, the, one of the big issues that we have, I believe, in our country that's led to where we are today is a crisis in spiritual leadership in the church. Listen to these words. If you're taking notes, you can write them down. This is Hosea chapter 4, verse 6. Hosea was from Judah. He was prophesying to the northern kingdom after the kingdom had split. Northern kingdom was called Israel. And listen to these words, Hosea 4, 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God or forgotten the word of God, I will also forget your, <clears throat> your children. So the priest in Hosea's generation had just checked out on reading the, the law. They were, they were to be in the temple. They were to teach the law as the people came to make their sacrifices. They were to teach. They were to explain to make sure people in the nation were understanding things. And they gave up. This is their great priority. 
So as the people were coming to make sacrifices, there was no teaching, no instruction. None of that was happening in taking place. And so there became, after several generations, a lack of knowledge. If this isn't taught, then nobody learns it. Let me give you an example. So when we lived in Germany from 2004 to 2008, it's against the law to homeschool your kids in Germany. You have to private school and pay for that, or you've got to put them in public school. So my kids were in German school for four years. Do you know what they don't teach in German public school in Germany? The Holocaust. Now you can go all over Germany to concentration camps and places where Jews were killed and other people were killed. And you can pay money and you can visit those places. But let's don't teach the younger generation the history. Because if they know the history, that'll make us feel sad. And I, if things are not taught, nobody learns about it. And so it's critical for us that we teach the Word of God at life point, not the latest book in the Christian world. We teach the Bible here, we proclaim the Bible. And so they've just done this new study. Arizona Christian University has done this. And it's from the Cultural Research Center. Listen to this. They ask people this question. Do you believe in absolute truth? Used to in America, people believed in truth was determined outside of yourself. It was, for the most part, in our history. It was in in view, though not everybody went to church, but most decisions were made in light of God and His Word. And that all began to change. So now in 2023, in this new study... 58% of Americans no longer believe that there's any kind of absolute truth. What's more tragic is they asked evangelicals. You know what an evangelical is? That's people like us. An evangelical is someone who should affirm that the Bible is true. They asked evangelicals, do you believe in absolute truth? 46% of people in our country who go to church on a consistent basis no longer believe that there's an absolute truth that we look inward to us to gain access and understanding of absolute truth. What that shows is this. There's not a big difference between the way the world thinks and the way the church thinks. And this comes about because about 30 years ago, people in my position decided this People are kind of sad. It's a hard world. So let's begin preaching to make sure everybody feels good about things. So when we walk out the doors, there's, oh, I feel good. I feel good. I can make it next week. Hopefully this, that's enough to kind of get me there. And after 30 years, these churches that were seeker-driven, and they catered their church to the felt needs of people, you know what every single one of them have found? Nobody in their church knows the scripture. And so you've had 30 to 40 years of this, because it actually started more than 30 years ago, of pulpits not preaching and teaching the scripture. There are three real issues in the American church today. One is cultural accommodation has taken over much of the church. Sunday mornings looked like they could have been planned by a marketing team. 
I think I'm funny. I'm not real funny in the pulpit a lot, you know, but I love to laugh, and I love, those of you who know me outside of this, I get pretty serious when I'm in here because what we're talking about is of eternal importance. So important. But we have just accommodated to the culture. What happens when a cultural, cultural accommodation becomes a big issue in the church? It comes because there's been an abandonment of Scripture. I think, I, again, I think I could probably tell some stories this morning to manipulate your emotions and to get some decisions today, but who knows if that's of God or not. What I would rather do is just stand before you as you've known for these years to just faithfully tell you this is what the Word says and let God do the work on your heart. I can't fix your heart. I can't fix my heart, but I know that He can. And so I just want to talk about him. And so this cultural accommodation comes from an abandonment of the scripture. And thirdly, this cultural accommodation, accommodation, it disconnects itself from the history of the church. And when you lose your history, it moves to a new form and a, there's, a, there's a new function and, and the church looks different. It does different things. And when the largest sense of church history is lost, all you have is a focus on the self. So Joshua leads the people into the promised land. They do battle over a series of years, the tribes settling the land and getting in place. And at the end, it says Joshua dies. And then another generation kind of comes to power. And so listen to these words. This is Judges 2.10. This is the generation after Joshua. Joshua dies. Everybody that was part of Joshua's generation who knew what God had done to bring them out of Egypt lead them through the wilderness, allow them to battle and fight for the places that the 12 tribes settled in Israel. It says, And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that He had done in Israel. What had happened after Joshua's generation died? Nobody told the stories of God anymore. And so we have had about three to four decades now of empty suited people. I don't wear a suit, but if I wore one. Empty suited people standing in pulpits in this country with no passion, no fire, no love for the word of God. And let just proclaim the truth and let the mighty work of the Holy Spirit do its work to those who come to listen. And so now we've arrived at this place. where there's just much lack of knowledge that dominates even people inside the church. You know, Jesus had something interesting to say about spiritual leadership. Listen to these words, John 10, 11 through 13. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. And he flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I tell you, if you listen today, in some certain circles with Christians, 
they will talk in a way that says the real issue of our day today is that liberals and lovers of sin are dominating our nation. And yes, that is true. But could there be a bigger reality that has contributed to all of this? Is it possible that what happened in America around 30 years ago was a grave failure of preaching in the pulpits of our churches? Could it be that empty, weak men stood in pulpits and no longer really had anything of eternal significance to say from the Word because the aim became making sure everybody was feeling okay and no longer aiming at teaching the whole counsel of the Bible? Jesus said a good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. As greater than his own life, he's willing to risk that. And then Jesus talked about a hired hand or a hireling. And could it be that for far too many years, the spiritual leadership in our nation, in churches, in other organizations, government, have focused on all kinds of things but Christ. Christ has been thrown in, but he's not been the focus. And when a nation has 30 years or more of no fiery preaching, biblical preaching, preaching connected to the truth, then you have surveys that are given and half the people in the church say, uh, there's no longer an absolute truth anymore. I get to determine that. They get to determine that. And they get to, and this person... And so everything is just individual now. A hired hand is around the sheep because he's getting money for his time. And it seems that we may have had a bunch of hired hands who are in the work for money, so they flee when the wolves of culture came and began to talk about these things because they only cared about themselves and not the sheep. And I just want to say this statement, and then we'll move on to the third thing. We need faithful shepherds who are willing to pay the price to proclaim the whole counsel of God regardless of what anybody else says. That's what's needed. We need fire again. Thirdly, truth is determined now. This is what's behind a lot of things in our culture By each individual. The very last sentence in the book of Judges is Judges 21-25, and it says this, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. When there is no lovingly, uncompromisingly preaching, proclaiming what is true to the people of God, then you get a land where people determine what truth is, and it's up to the individual to determine that and to determine the right course. So this is the lie that Satan spoke directly to Eve. Eve, you're going to have a better life knowing evil, and you'll have autonomy from God because you'll kind of be like Him. And she bought the lie, and people are buying the lie today. And when you have a nation where everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes, you will have consequences and you will have darkness. 
Let me tell you just a backdrop of the book of Judges. So it ends with, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The period of Judges from chapter 1 to the very end is 400 years. And this is what happened over and over. They would be in a right relationship with God. They would rebel against God. God would send an enemy in to discipline them. They would cry out to God. God would raise up a judge, a savior to save them. They would be right right with God. And for 400 years, they just went in the cycle. And at the end, they were like, okay, God, this doesn't seem to be working well with you being our king. We'd like a man king. And God had already predicted this before they even settled the land that in the future they're going to come and they're going to want a king that's a man. And so here they are. You know how well that worked? They had three kings immediately as a united nation. Saul, Saul, no heart for God whatsoever, disaster. David started really well, but then he sinned and he had deep consequences with his family that ended up destroying the nation. And then you had Solomon, who started off well, as well, but then he just kind of had a half a heart. And then after that, the kingdom divides. There's a southern kingdom and there's a northern kingdom. And so everybody's doing right in their own eyes. And I want, I want, <clears throat> listen to me. I love you. I love you. You know I love you, right? Our hope, is not November 2024. We're just going to be voting on an... I want righteous people leading us. That is a noble thing. It's a biblical thing. But the person who's going to be in the White House is going to be a person whose heart is deceitfully wicked, as Jeremiah writes in Jeremiah 17. So we don't place our trust... And people, we place our trust in the perfect God who sovereignly praises His name today, loves people like you and I, has redeemed us, wants to move in our lives. And so our hope has to rest in Him, not in us, and not in other people. We've got to have our hope connected to Him. Having God as our King, the King who is perfect. He's not just perfect in His own eyes. He's perfect. He's fully righteous. And human kings do not fix human hearts. Only an eternal king can do that. And so here, at the end of Judges, they're like everybody doing what is right in their own eyes. And just forgetting about what's true, regardless of the cost. And when one doesn't know the eternal king... People will worship the God of self-identity. And this is our country today. Buying the lie, just be true to yourself in what you think is right. This is what the world says. Follow your heart. But the Bible says the heart is deceitful, deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The world will say, be true to yourself. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The world says, oh, believe in yourself. You've got all the answers for your future. 
We are not the way he is. And so Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. The world that follows its way and what's right in its own eyes says, follow your dreams. At no, at, no matter what the cost is and who you have to step over, just follow your dreams. Well, the problem with that is the Bible says many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that stands. The world says you do what makes you happy. You make sure that you're happy about everything. And Peter writes, for it's better for you to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. And I tell you, I have walked with the Lord since I was 17. I had a birthday on Friday and none of y'all brought a present to my house. So I'm going to hold that against you until next August. I'm kidding. I've been walking with the Lord for a long time now. And I know joy that's beyond happiness. And it's not ever dependent upon my circumstances. It's dependent upon my knowing Him. The one who died in my place. And who saved me. The last things behind all of this is in Isaiah chapter 5. And this is the one that has dramatically increased. And it's the redefining of what is morally Good. So Isaiah is prophesying to the northern kingdom, telling them that the Assyrians are going to come and they're going to scatter them. And in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, there are a bunch of woes that are being spoken there. And it says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And woe for those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. The Syrians come in in 720 B.C. and they scoop up the northern kingdom, ten tribes, scatter them, and you just have Judah that is left, but in the northern kingdom, sin was being celebrated, and they were redefining everything in the country. They had flipped and reversed the order of God's moral order. What had once been clearly defined in the land, this is wrong, this is evil, that they were saying, oh, that's good now. Continue to practice that and continue to do that. And what used to be called evil, they were like, Oh, that's not evil anymore. No, that's actually good. And people that were doing good things are like, no, 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 no. That, that's evil, what you're doing. And they had, they had reversed God's moral order and flipped it. So they're redefining sin and words and language to be mainstream and spoken of as good. And I remind you and I this morning this. Everybody doing okay? Y'all doing okay this morning? All right. Listen to this. God does not change. What he once said was sin. Guess what is today? What's it called? Sin. Oh, yeah, but this is 2023. We know a lot more things than when Isaiah lived 
2,700 years ago. What does he know? Well, what he knows is this, is that the Holy Spirit was using him to write Isaiah 5.20. And what God called sin 2,700 years ago, he calls it sin today. Now, we're more sophisticated in our country today. We don't walk around going, oh, I'm calling this good evil and evil good. We don't say that. We, we, we have, we've gotten a little more sophisticated and nuanced. It sounds like this. I have a right to love who I want to love. Well, everybody's choice deserves respect and understanding. Adultery is now called an affair. A pedophile, they're renaming this, is now called a minor attracted person to soften the reality of that. Homosexuality is called an alternative lifestyle choice. A man and a woman who are married, now our culture says, no, a man and a man who are married, those are equal marriages. Or I've had people tell me this, well, Doke, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. And I'm like, yeah, I do. I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay with that. In 2015, Rolling Stone in October wrote an article called this, Planned Parenthood is not harvesting baby parts. The article stated that the research places and the public universities that were using aborted babies, they, um, they were not purchasing the baby parts to do their experiments things with. They were, listen to this, buying fetal tissue and products of conception. They just renamed it. The reality is, is those baby parts had been torn in two and arms ripped off inside the womb or burned to death by certain chemicals. And they can rename it all they want to rename it. But that's a human life that has been destroyed, that has been made in the image of God. When I was a kid, one of my favorite movies was 101 Dalmatians. Let me give you a modern picture of this. Think with me for a moment and ask if this scenario could take place in 2023. Some upscale clothing company decides they're going to debut a new line of coats made from the fur of golden retriever puppies. But not just any golden retriever puppies. These are unwanted golden retrievers. The breeder decided to breed more puppies than he could care for or sell. So instead of putting these puppies up for adoption, he decides to have them euthanized. And now, since the puppies are dead anyways, this breeder proceeds to sell the fur in order to make luxurious coats for red carpet fashion. Can you imagine the public outrage? What would we call this? People would say, that's evil, that's heartless, that's wicked, that's cruel, it's unthinkable. PETA would lose their minds. Crowds would call for the government to strip the breeder of his license or permit in social media. Can you imagine the social media outcry? Fair-minded citizens would say, I'm no longer going to buy anything from that company. 
the whole operation and anyone associated it would come crashing down in flames. And yet this happens daily in this country to babies. And nobody seems to really have an issue with it but Christians. You see, our country, listen, this, this redefining things, it's not going to stop. And so as his people, we are, have to be wise to the ploy. And so Isaiah's just giving a warning saying this, this is, a, this is a call from God to not do this. And this is what's behind all the things that are, that, that, and, and this, is, this is the deal. If we stand up to abortion, you know, we're called now, we're called evil. We're standing up for beautiful little miracles that God has done something unique in the womb of a woman. And we're called evil for fighting for their life. And we should continue to fight. We should continue to speak. We should continue to be honest. And not yelling and screaming, but tenderly, firmly walking beside people saying, no, this is truth. And there's a God who loves you. And He's calling you to Himself. And I want to tell you about Him. And He can help you through what you're dealing with right now. And we live in such a time of contradiction. And Timothy told, Paul told Timothy, this day was going to come. Paul was writing to Timothy, not about the Gentiles, but about the church. And he said this, there's going to come a time when people are no longer going to endure sound teaching. They're going to want everything to be called something else. And they're going to have itching ears and they're going to get teachers to tell them what they in the church want to hear because they don't want to hear anything that doesn't make them feel okay. And for you and I, one of the worst things that we can do is to remain silent and just stay in our echo chamber group of like-minded people and we get mad about it and fired up about it and then we never say anything in spaces where it might cost us something and to really take a stand. We cannot tolerate the changes that are being thrust upon us. We have to use biblical language. So our culture, listen, it's going to continue and continue and to continue to redefine things. We keep our sanity knowing that's what they do. And we embrace God's way. So what do we do as sojourners? This is not my home. Is it your home? This is not my home. I'm headed to a throne room and a heaven room where King Jesus is sitting. That's where I'm going. And I'm not going there because I've earned something. I'm going there because He has done something in me. So what do we do? Here's what we do to navigate this. We've got to get back to what Jesus said in John chapter 18, verse 37. He's standing before Pilate. Pilate has just said, what is truth? And Jesus says this, listen, Pilate, I've come for this reason, for truth. I've come for truth to establish this reality. And those who are of the truth, they know my voice. And so I want to remind you and I this morning, how do we navigate 
All of this that's happening and taking place, we navigate it in this reality. We've got to continue, or we've got to get back to connected to Jesus. He said that. He said, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. His kingdom operates itself within the realm of truth and will change things from the inside out in the redeemed hearts of his people. And so we navigate all of this by knowing the truth. So therefore, it's my responsibility. It's the elder's responsibility. If you work in the children's ministry, it's your responsibility. It's Martha's and Mark's. If you work with the students, it's your responsibility that when we gather, we talk about truth. And to talk about truth, you've got to talk about Jesus. You've got to talk about the Father who sent Jesus. And you've got to talk about the truth that Jesus and the Father sent the Spirit to live inside of us. And you've got to talk about the reality. Listen, it's not, this is not popular today. He is coming back again to judge the world. He's going to judge the world. And my heart breaks that there are so many people who don't know the loving grace of Jesus. So we've got to restore and reconnect with the one great knowledge of truth. Secondly, we've got to have biblical resolve to not let Babylon have dominion over our lives. So I didn't share it a while ago, but I shared Daniel 6. But here's Daniel 1.8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. From the immediate time that they got into Babylon, Daniel and his friends were told how they ought to live, how they ought to eat, what they ought to drink, and immediately had a choice. Am I going to trust God, or am I just going to follow, fall in line with the statutes of Babylon? So at great risk, they say, no, we're not going to do this. They go to the chief eunuch and say, listen, we're not going to do this. Just give us vegetables, observe us, and water, and, and we're going to trust God, and you're going to see that we're going to be in better shape. Biblical resolve happens when we know God and His Word are far better than our life and any kind of earth's trinkets. And we are to not be like the world, period. So we ask questions. How does God call us to live? What are the greater priorities that we know God is calling us to live by, regardless of what may be demanded of us in this life? So how does the world... How how does God call us to lead our family schedule? How does the Word call us to talk differently? How does the Word call us to use our money? How does the Word call us to prioritize our lives in line with His will? And all these questions should be thought out ahead of time, not made in the moment, and to be ready to say yes to Him. So we've got to reconnect with what's true, and that's Jesus, and that's the Word. We've got to resolve to let Babylon not have dominion over us. Thirdly, we've got to train ourselves for godliness. Now, I put my purple shirt on this morning, and I stood in front of the mirror. And there's a section of my body right here that's a little bigger than it was when I used to train a lot. So I was a college athlete. I played college football, and I used to look different in my shirts than I do now. And here's what the Bible says. Paul's writing to this young pastor named Timothy. 
He writes two letters to him, some of the most significant New Testament books for the church to understand what, this, what is the church to be about, what's church life to be about. And Paul says this to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, 6-10. through 10. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. And he says, this have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather do this, Timothy, train yourself for godliness. He says bodily training is of some value, but godliness is of value in every kind of way. And here's why. It holds promise in the present life and also in the life to come. And then he says, the saying is trustworthy and it deserves full acceptance. For to this end we told and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Listen, church, there is no shortcut to godliness. You pay a price to be godly. So I'm at West Texas University playing football. I didn't get to start until my senior year. So I got to do all the training and didn't play any games hardly until my last year and my last season. So I trained a lot. I desired to play and also desired to have a spiritual impact upon my teammates. So in my real sophomore year, after a redshirt year and a transfer year that I had to sit out, and I thought, well, the only way I'm going to have real spiritual influence on my team is, is to be contributing, playing physically to my team. And then in my sophomore year, I realized that that wasn't true. I realized that I would have greater impact upon my team, and I would become a better athlete if godliness became my goal more than being a better quarterback. So, instead of making playing the sport my greater aim, I made knowing Christ my greater goal. And I found in that priority that I handled not playing much better than I was before. And yet at the same time, I got to be a better quarterback even though I wasn't playing in the game because Christ was my goal. And God blessed this newfound focus. Now, he didn't make me the starter. He didn't make the two, two guys in front of me both break their legs and so I could play. I continued to sit the bench and play sparingly. But you know what God did in those two years before I started? I was able to share the gospel with every one of my teammates because there was a new focus in my life. And things were different. Parents whose kids are in sports, this is said lovingly to you because of somebody who's been there. Godliness is of way better value. Play sports. If I could go back, I'd play sports again. I would hope I would have, a, if I could take back what I know now, I'd have a fresh perspective. But remind your kids in the midst of a fast and furious season that they've got to pay the price also for godliness. That's absolutely important. 
Lastly, do y'all have anything to do today? Tad says, do they have anything to do today? Tad says, y'all have nothing to do today. I got to wind this down. Let me share this. One of the things that's absolutely critical of living righteously in Babylon is what Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4. Listen to these words. He says, Timothy, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. And then listen to these words. Until I come, Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. And don't neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So Timothy, practice these things. Immerse yourself in these things so that all may see your progress. And then he says, keep a close watch on yourself and the teaching. Persist in this life in doing this. For by doing so, you're going to say both yourself and then those who listen to you, your hearers. Now, I thought about this a lot, most of my Christian life, because I thought about it a lot my pre-Christian life. I used to go to church, I wasn't a believer until I was 17, and I would go and I would sit there and think, what in the world is this boring place that I'm at? Oh my gosh, when's that guy up there? My pastor's name was Mike Toby. When's he going to be done? Man, we got, we got basketball to get to. We got things to get to this afternoon. And then I became a believer, and I couldn't go to enough church services. Just love being around, hearing the Word of God. But have you ever paused to think about how strange we Christians are when we gather together? And you can go to any country today. Some, some churches met yesterday, Saturday, Some met today already in other parts of the world. And I can tell you this, in every single one of them, two things happened over and over. They sang and they preached. And if you went to that church last Sunday, you know what they did last Sunday? They sang and they preached. And it doesn't matter. You can look at church history. The church gathered together. You can look in Acts. We don't know if they sang a whole lot in Acts. It doesn't say there. But they preached a lot in Acts. But you look at the history, Christians gather together, every culture, every language, every tribe, if it's under a tree, if it's in a building, if it's in a boat, I guarantee you those two things are there. They sing and they preach. Is that because we're not very creative? No. Do you know why it is? And I got this from John Piper. He kind of preached about this one time. So part of this I'm stealing, but I had thought about it before he preached it. <laughs> so partially it's mine. In 2015, he preached about this, and, and it's true. Do you know why we do what we do Sunday after Sunday? And when you come next Sunday, do you know that we're going to... Guess what we're doing next Sunday? <laughs> you know why we do that? We're going to close this. Because we have something that Muslims don't have. 
We have something that the Taoists don't have and the Buddhists. We have good news. And it's so good and so impactful and so eternal that when we get together, we can't but not say it out loud and sing it out loud. It's such good news that sinful, lost, broken people had a God, an eternal God, who left the throne room of heaven in a setting of worship. He came here. He died on a cross in our place, bearing our sin, and now in salvation, His all-righteousness He imputes to us. Imputation means this. It's an account. It's an accounting term. Where something's in one account, like we've got apps and we can move things from checking to saving, savings to checking. But in God's economy, at salvation, Christ's righteousness is put on somebody who is all sinful. And immediately they're all righteous. And so we have news that is absolutely amazing. So that's why I preach and I spit. Because I get excited about it. And I want to sing about it. And this is why the church is unlike any organization on the planet today. The Muslims don't get together and preach and sing. The Taoists don't. The Buddhists don't. Nobody does what we do Sunday after Sunday, Sunday after Sunday. Why? Because we're the only group on the planet who has good news. And we can't help but worship and honor Him. All right, let's pray.